Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, and we're actually in the same chapter now, the final chapter of Luke that that great affirmation comes from. We've been saying every week, and this passage is about that. So let's uh, say it together, Luke 24, verses 46 and 47. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And we're reminded there that the word nations is the word ethnos, which means all the ethnicities of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. The book of Revelation and twice in chapter 5 and chapter 7 promises that every single people group, every single language will be represented in heaven and all made possible by the sacrificial death of Christ, his rising from the dead. We, all that is possible because the tomb is empty. And we're so excited for that. Well, as we've gone through Luke's gospel, we have fa- talked about Jesus's miraculous virgin birth. He did not inherit the same sin nature that the rest of us do. So that made him able to be a sacrifice for our sins along with his perfect sinless life that he actually led as he lived this perfect life. And that fulfilled, he fulfilled scores of Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. We've seen how he would love both the down and out and the up and out as he compassionately taught, as he ministered, as he worked miracles. He showed himself to be Lord over the physical realm. He could make body parts that weren't working work again. He could walk on water. He could um, uh, you know, feed 5,000. He was Lord of the physical realm. He was Lord of the doctrinal realm. People marveled at how he clarified the Old Testament teachings and got away from the extras that the legalistic Pharisees had added to the word. He came uh, and they said, he teaches like he's got the authority, and he did. He's also Lord of the spiritual realm. He could make demons leave people. And he also said, I have the power on earth to forgive sins, and he forgave sins. And they said, only God could do that. And he said, you're on to something now. God is walking among you. Emmanuel is here. God with us. Well, then in the last few sermons, we've seen Jesus' arrest, his trials, his crucifixion, his death, and his burial, all of those themselves fulfilling Old Testament prophecies and predictions he himself had made. But then it got really good. Jesus rose from the dead. Eddie's already done it once, but we'll do it several times in this message. He is risen! risen And we're getting ready for Easter as we say that. We're going to look at the passage in which the disciples of Jesus discovered the empty tomb. Empty because Jesus had conquered the grave. We serve a risen Savior. So Luke chapter 24, but uh, oh, even before we get there, I want to go over something else with you. It's going to be the first 12 verses in just a moment there. But let's take a moment to say that. Even without the perfectly reliable New Testament accounts that we have, The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is actually the best attested fact in all of ancient history. 
You know, we base everything we know on Socr- about Socrates on what Plato passed along to us and what Xenophon, another teacher, passed along to us. So nobody doubts that Socrates existed. Well, maybe a few do because all it is is Plato and Socrates' words there. And, um, and, and with all the other ancient documents except the Bible, there's very few relative uh, manuscripts they've found. When they put them all together, they don't get 100% of the document. And the first writing we have from when they wrote was actually hundreds of years later. And none of those things are true of the Scriptures. For the Scriptures, we have thousands and thousands of manuscripts. And it's absolutely amazing that that's true because of the scant other ancient documents, so we have much more uh, attestation of the things than they have there. We also have them written relatively close to when the, the very first original document was written. It's amazing how they just keep on discovering more and more where that's the case. And then we also have, when you put all the fragments together that are of the Old New Testaments, we actually have more than the perfect original. We have the perfect original plus a little bit that copyists added or or uh, copied as somebody else had as years to come. And because we know, when you read a typewritten document, you know it's not a computer document, we know we can lay out exactly when those documents were written. And so we know what the perfect original was, and we've got it, the beautiful and errant word of God. But we also, uh, you know, I talked about Socrates there. We base everything we know about Caesar, Julius Caesar, on very few documents that all those things I just said are true of. But with the scriptures, we have something very amazing. With the life, death, resurrection, and impact of Jesus, we have not just the 104 references uh, to Christ's resurrection written by eight different biblical authors. That's a lot, by the way. I mean, just there's 270 chapters in the New Testament, so they're talking about the resurrection all the time and its significance and meaning. But we also have many other ancient pagan and Jewish writers tell us about Jesus' life and impact. In fact, I'm going to put them up here for you. You can go look at this at coldcasechristianity.com, which is a great website. But let's put this graphic up. And these are hostile ancient testimony that are related to Jesus. You say, my goodness, I'm not sure I can see all that. Well, that's all right. Think about a clock. Now, younger folks don't know how to read a clock these days. But the very top of the clock is 12 o'clock, and then it goes to 1, 2, 3, like that, right? So as we look at this together, let's look at this, and we're looking at the clock, and the very top is Pliny the Younger. And Pliny the Younger wrote that Jesus' followers thought he was God, so he was able to say that the impact had been that. Suetonius, he wrote that Jesus was a real man, he had been called the Christ, and caused Jewish disturbances wherever he went as the uh, faith came out of the Jewish... uh, Uh, areas. And um, so he was able to report that these uh, riots and things we read about in the New Testament were actually happening. Celsus uh, said, hey, Jesus was allegedly born of a virgin. His father, father was a carpenter. He had miraculous powers. Josephus, writing earliest to the time of Christ, all these were within a couple hundred years except the Talmud that developed uh, as time went along and still is developing today. But Josephus, uh, he wrote that Jesus was a wise man and his followers definitely reported his resurrection. 
And the word, reading what Josephus wrote is wonderful. You might want to Google that later, later and look it up. The Talmud, that's the uh, Jewish extras that they add to interpret the Old and New Testament scriptures. Around 500 or so AD, they said Jesus was executed the day before the Passover and he had magical powers. And they're trying to explain uh, things like that they're reinforcing the stolen body theory and things like that. Well, we come over here to, I think it's seven o'clock, Thallus wrote that Jesus lived, Jesus was crucified, and he documented the earthquake that happened, the darkness and the earthquake, just like the gospel writers tell us about. He was certainly not a friend of Jesus. None of these guys were. Tacitus wrote that he was called the Christ, Jesus was called the Christ, that his followers are Christians, that he was executed under Pontius Pilate, just like Luke tells us and the gospel writers tell us. Bar Seraphian, Bar means son of, so this is the son of Seraphian, uh, taught that Jesus was a wise king, that the Jews wanted him dead, and his teachings remained to that day. They were still having impact. And Phlegon wrote that Jesus predicted the future, he rose after death, and he showed signs of crucifixion. So all of those are extra attestations, as well as there was a fellow named Lucian, who's not on that list there. Lucian was a smart aleck comedian in the, uh, between 115 and 200, and he himself had some sarcastic things to say about Jesus, but as he said them, they were clearly showing the incredible impact that Christ had had and how everywhere his followers went, the faith was embraced and that uh, and the disturbances were called, all that reinforcing things. One very interesting thing that archaeologists have found is from around the 60s or 70s AD, they have found an inscription at Nazareth that basically says, if you steal a body from a grave, it's now a De- a, a, a punishment. It's, it's now a crime punishable by death. Before it hadn't been much of a punishment, and so that itself shows the impact of them trying to deal with who was Jesus, what did he do. And remember that all of those writers were not Christians, but they were trying to record and also analyze why the Christian faith had grown so quickly. So let me put up this question. How had the cowardly disciples who had fled when Jesus was killed Afraid of what little girls said, you know, servant girls said in a courtyard. How had they turned into lion-like preachers who no longer ran from persecution? In fact, all of those early ones willing to die for the faith and did. Only John died of a ripe old age. The rest of those first eyewitnesses and many of their friends and disciples like Stephen also died. Well, the answer was that they really had seen the same Jesus who had died and was buried in a guarded tomb on a Friday alive. And outside that empty tomb on Sunday, dead on Friday, alive on Sunday. Knowing Jesus was alive turned them into bold witnesses where previously they had been cowards and running for the hills. And again we say, he is risen. risen So Luke chapter 24, going to read the first 12 verses. It says, now on the first day of the week, I like how the Greek reads, on that first day at deep dawn. Man, it was early. It was early. I haven't seen that, that kind of early in a while. It was deep dawn. Very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were mega perplexed about this, greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. They were angels. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, the angel said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Isn't that great? 
Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. And I love the times the Bible says, remember. When you've gotten off track, remember what Jesus taught you. Remember what the scriptures say to you. The angel said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And the ladies, verse 8 says, the ladies, they remembered his words. Then those ladies returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales. These men didn't believe these women. Their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But, I'm thankful for verse 12, it says, But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself as to what had happened. And then it got really good. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what we read in Luke 24 about this empty tomb and how it set in motion an investigation to see why the tomb was empty. And then one by one, these dear disciples had an encounter with the risen Lord. Thank you so much, Jesus, that the grave couldn't hold you. Thank you that you re-entered that body after emptying Hades of all the redeemed and placing them in heaven, and you came and you rose up out of the grave. And we're so thankful that you did. We're so thankful that you did because you promised that since you've been raised from the dead, all of us who have trusted in you will also have a new body one day to live in a new earth. Lord, we're thankful that for believers, every time we have a funeral service of a fellow believer, we know that the scripture says to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And we know one day that because you raised and took a body back to heaven with you, Lord, that one day we'll all have new bodies ourselves, God. Oh, it staggers the mind to think about it, Lord God. We thank you so much for the truth of our faith and Jesus, you being the author and perfecter of our faith, you being the first fruits of all those who would themselves rise from the dead. Bless us as we look at this text. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, last week's passage, the end of Luke chapter 23, ends with multiple female disciples of Jesus having seen Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus lay the body of Jesus, the dead body of Jesus, in a tomb. And then it was sealed, a stone, heavy stone was rolled over it, and it was guarded by, uh, I believe it was Roman soldiers. Uh, Pilate had allowed all that to happen. And um, the New Testament actually, you know, when you think about, there's probably about 10 different objections to Christ's resurrection that have been leveled over these last 2,000 years. And what's so great about the wonderful scriptures that were given is each and every one of those is really answered before they were made. And some of them were made at the exact same time that uh, all this was happening because it's so hard to believe that somebody could conquer the grave. And yet here God was on earth conquering the grave. And of course, it stands out as unique because of all the different funeral experiences 
experiences we've had where we didn't see that body back again. But because of what Jesus has done, we trust in what's coming. Now, uh, so as we look through the text, we're also mindful of different objections that have been raised to the resurrection of Christ over the years. And one of the common ones was the swoon theory. And it says that Jesus didn't die on the cross. He just was so uh, sick and faint during that time that he appeared dead. And what they put in the tomb was a fainted Jesus, not a dead Jesus. And when the cool air of the air of the tomb hit him, he rose up uh, and, and got out of there because he was alive. And that is really interesting to think about. But we know that the Romans, they were experts at killing people. They knew how to get the job done. And we also know that uh, Pilate said, is he dead? And a soldier said, oh yeah, he's dead. We thrust the sword in and water and blood came out together, which indicates death, not merely uh, live. There still would have been blood if he hadn't died yet and all those different things. And so on Friday, Jesus' dead body was laid inside a tomb that was inaccessible to these ladies. But in verses 1 through 3, we see that on Sunday, nobody was found in the tomb that Jesus' body had been buried in. So some of the same ladies that were there on the Friday were also there on the Sunday as witnesses to see both those events. They didn't think they would see Jesus alive. Their plan was to finish anointing his dead body for burial. We'll read that here in verses 1 and 2. Out of respect for what he had meant to them. Now in verse 10, we learn who the ladies were. Uh, we learn that Mary Magdalene was there, Joanna was there, and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them. According to Mark's gospel, uh, both of those Marys, M and M, the Mary and Mary, they were actually uh, witnesses on the Friday too. So some of the same women that saw his dead body laid saw the empty tomb on Sunday. Now Mary Magdalene, she had been down and out, right? Uh, we're told that seven demons had been cast out of her. By the way, the scriptures never say that she was a prostitute. Maybe she had been. That was a pope in the 6th or 7th century uh, that said she was a prostitute, and, and people have followed that line ever since. But the scriptures never say that about that. It says that she was down and out, had a tremendous demonic oppression about her, and that Christ had cast the seven demons out of her. He had become her Savior and Lord. And, you know, it's amazing in the last few years with all this uh, Me Too movement, you know, and really uh, talking talking about, as we should, that sexual abuse should not happen, you know, that uh, uh, women should be honored and those things. It's a shame that liberal scholars, when they look at the story of Jesus, want to turn Mary Magdalene into Jesus's lover or something like that. They see sex everywhere, you know, but the text certainly doesn't do that. The early church didn't do that. And Dan Brown and his Da Vinci Code, I read that book and some of you did as well. He says early on, he says, I'm going to prove to you from what I put in here uh, that the church has been covering up the fact that Jesus and Mary Magdalene had an affair and that they had children and those exist among us to this day and that's what the Holy Grail language is. And he goes on to say some things about, uh, you know, um, different uh, historical ciphers and things like that. And people go, oh, he's probably right about those things. He must be right about this other too. And yet as one who studied the evidence, I can tell you what he describes as proof is that three or four hundred years after Christ, in something called the Gospel of Mary Magdalene uh, and the Gospel of Peter, they put those things together. We don't have 100% of either of those documents. They're written several hundred years after Christ by enemies of Christ, not friends of Christ. And uh, the one says that Jesus kissed blank on the blank. 
We don't have what it says there. It's corrupted, corrupted text. And the other one says that Peter was jealous of Mary Magdalene. And Dan Brown and others with toilet minds have put those together and says it means that they had an affair. No, no. Mary was just a grateful woman who had been set free by Jesus Christ. She had been down and out. Christ had saved her, forgiven her of her sins, and she loved him back. Joanna, she was an upscale lady. She was the wife of Chusa, who was Herod's steward. So Herod was, Chusa was a big wig in Herod's government. Joanna was, um, you know, uh, his wife. And Joanna had herself been set free by Jesus, loved him. In Luke 8, we see that she was one of the ladies that was traveling with the disciples and using her vast resources to help fund all that they were doing as they were going along because of all the details it would take to move not only 12 men, but also dozens of others, men and women, boys and girls, that were following them along as Jesus ministered and traveled. Whether down or out or up or out, all people need God, don't they? All people need God. And Joanna had been set free by God. And Mary Magdalene had been set free by God. They both loved Jesus. They experienced his forgiveness. They had peace with God through him. And now they um, just get to see that the tomb is empty. And in a little while, Mary Magdalene is going to get to be the first witness of uh, the resurrected Lord. So powerful, so beautiful. Well, according to Mark's gospel, on the way to the tomb, the women wondered, what are we going to do when we get there? We've got these spices. We, we want to anoint Jesus' body for burial. But when we get there, um, there's this big tomb across it, and the soldiers may not let us in. How are we going to get in there? How are we going to get in there? So they were wondering about that. Um, and some of those who reject Jesus' resurrection think that the women went to the wrong tomb which is laughable. First of all, it's disrespectful, isn't it? You know, because they're basically taking chauvinism and saying, oh, the women couldn't find the right place. Well, they knew where they saw its body buried. They knew the right place to come back to, and they did. But if they had, they would have seen somebody's body buried there, right? And they saw nobody. Uh, and it doesn't, of course, account for the fact that they actually saw him alive after that and their lives were transformed. Now, Luke doesn't tell us how the stone got rolled away, just that it was, it was and that going into the tomb they found no body there. Matthew tells us why. There had been a violent earthquake that had occurred and an angel of the Lord rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, which is the dazzling clothes that Luke describes here. Uh, and Matthew tells us also that the guards were so shaken with fear uh, that they became like dead men. And so Jesus might have walked on by them there as they were just frozen with fear there. Apparently, with no body to guard, when they came to themselves, they went back to the barracks before the women got there. And Matthew also lets us know that those guards did accept a bribe from the Jewish officials to say the body had been stolen by Jesus' disciples in the night which itself is kind of laughable, isn't it? So we're expected to believe that the same guys that were scared of servant girls uh, in the uh, courtyard just a couple days before, a few days before, and were not right with Jesus. Only John was with the ladies at the foot of the uh, cross when he was there. The rest of them were looking on nervously from a distance, afraid to be identified. If they were going to do something, that would have been the time to do something while Jesus was still alive. We're told that those Frady cats were willing to take on a Roman guard who knew how to fight people off and kill. I don't think that's so. In any event, the ladies got to the tomb, and now it was accessible. It was also empty. 
The stone, of course, wasn't so much rolled away (laughs) to let the Lord out, but to let the eyewitnesses in so they could go and report what they had seen. And we're glad that happened. That leads us to the next passage. In verses 4 through 8, we see that the angels explain to these ladies what has happened using Jesus' own words. So Luke lets us know there were two angels there. Matthew and Mark let us know there was a speaking angel. Luke lets us know that a second angel was there. They came up suddenly to the women, and angels can do that with their supernatural bodies, right? All of a sudden, there they are. And these ladies were right there in their presence was these angels, and they did what most people in the Bible does when a Bible uh, when an angel shows up, they were afraid. They dropped to the ground, right? They dropped to the ground in absolute fear and terror of these mighty men that were before them. Now, don't you love the announcements of angels in the Bible? I just love when you go through and you see an angel show up and say something to God's people. And usually they start with fear not because the people are shaking in fear there. But I love that angels announced Jesus' conception and birth, and now they are announcing his resurrection. Just like Eddie slipped that song in on us, you know, that uh, you sing at Christmas time, newborn king and the risen king now. Pretty cool. Um, and they say, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. I think those are among the sweetest words ever spoken. Here's how they read in the Greek. Uk esten odi al agerthe. He is not here, but was raised. And then they said, remember what he said to you. I love how this passage has some of what happens when we look at the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Remember and return. Remember and return. Remember what Jesus said to you, ladies, and return and tell everybody you know about it. And in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, when we find ourselves having lost our first love, He says, remember what you used to have in Jesus and return to your first love. We're always remembering and returning. Oh, it is a sin-stained world that believers live out their faith in. And even the most fiery, hot hearts for Jesus sometimes get a little cold, get a little cold, sometimes get ice cold. It's not that you're not saved. It's you haven't fellowshiped with God in a while and he misses his time with you. What do you do? You remember and you return. John Calvin said, our hearts are idol-making factories. And he was talking about believers. We love to get a little religious satisfaction out of this, although it doesn't come from sports. It doesn't come from entertainment. It doesn't come from sexual relationships outside of marriage. It comes from knowing God and making him known. Remember and return. Remember what he said to you, ladies. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified in the third day, rise again. At least three different times, Jesus had said that this was going to happen. They're going to Jerusalem. I've got to go. I've got to go to Jerusalem, and there I'll be betrayed and arrested. I'll be crucified. I will rise again. And as foretastes of that, he raised at least three people in the Bible, didn't he? In the pages of the New Testament, in the Gospels, we see him raise at least three people. Lazarus is actually named, and we know that great story of Lazarus, although four days dead, all of a sudden was alive again. So they had seen that happen uh, not too long before they had actually gone to Jerusalem for this. But that just says how final reality death is, right? Right. I've heard stories of people being raised from the dead after a day or two or three of dead. 
Mark Hefner's told me so those wonderful stories that come to us from the church in China and stuff. And they're hard to document in those things. But I think if I had seen Lazarus raised from the dead, knowing he was dead and that he stank and then he was alive again, I think I'd be more likely to believe and remember that Jesus had said he would rise from the dead and that it had actually happened when that came. But, but, but just like us, death is so final and, and, and it looks like it's over so much that these disciples weren't even tracking that way. And th- this answers another objection to the resurrection. There are people that think that as the years have gone on, we've gotten smarter than people that came before. We might know more about scientific things, um, but it's not that the early people were unscientific. They kept adding knowledge in as they went, and they were never dumb. In fact, in many ways, they had more common sense than we do today, you know, uh, and they certainly didn't reject things that are just obviously true that are in front of you, like that were created, male and female, and those type different things, you know, and so they were not gullible, dumb, hick fools, you know, and yet oftentimes that's what's thought about them, that in those days people were more gullible and they were believing in things like rising from the dead all the time. (laughs) But that just doesn't square with the honest record of the Gospels. They were not like that. In fact, they were skeptical as many people are today. Everyone who first heard that Jesus was alive did not fully believe it until they saw Jesus alive, despite what he himself had clearly taught them. Now, to these ladies' credit, in verse 8 it says they remembered Jesus' words. Satan would love for the world to forget what Jesus said. He doesn't want us to remember what Jesus said because he doesn't want us to return to God, to return to Jesus and find our salvation in him. That leads us to the next passage, verses 9 through 11. Jesus' disciples became the first doubters of his resurrection. Have you ever thought about that? We sing the hymns today and we're like, oh, St. Matthew. St. Peter, uh, St. this one and St. that one, St. John, St. James, they must have immediately embraced the Lord. That's not what the text says. In verse 9, we read that the ladies returned from the tomb and they told these things to to the eleven and to all the rest. In Mark's gospel, we read they didn't stop to talk to anyone along the way. They were so zealous to get there. And so here the ladies run back to where the disciples are gathered. They're frantic. And the lady disciples want to tell the male disciples and the male and female disciples gathered there what they had just experienced since the word from the angels. Uh, Now, ladies could give testimony in court in those days. They just didn't count as much as a man's in that world. If the disciples had made all of this up, certainly they would have overlooked uh, some of the details here that uh, elevate the ladies to their great role in this and the male disciples who were more cowardly, who were more unbelieving, who were more foolish. These things were included and passed on because this is how it happened. And of course, we read next that the male disciples heard what the lady said and jumped for joy, right? They jumped for joy because they had never stopped believing what Jesus had said. They'd taken it all in faith and they were waiting for this third day him to rise from the dead. Is that what happened? No, it's not. No, it's not. In fact, <laughs> look at it here. It says here, um, they remembered his words. Verse 9, they returned from the tomb, told all these things to the leaven to the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Verse 11, and their words seemed to them like idle tales. Underline that or circle that, idle tales. And they did not believe them. The word for idle tales there is the word liros. 
We get delirious from it. Can you see delirious, leros in there, delirious? The word leros was used in medical language of the wild talk of the sick uh, during delirium. They thought these women were delirious. The women were excitedly communicating the most important truth ever, and the men just thought they were nutso. They're crazy. What are these crazy ladies saying to us? Dead people don't come back to life. We are here in the midst of mourning and grieving. We're sitting shiva for Jesus because he's died. And you're talking about him coming back to life. That's nonsense. They weren't gullible people who would easily believe it. They disbelieved it just like we would about somebody in this room. Now, over the centuries, some have suggested those who said they saw Jesus had a mass hallucination. First of all, that's not how hallucinations work. Hallucination is an individual thing, right? In fact, one psychiatrist said that if 500 different people had the same hallucination of seeing Jesus alive, that would be a bigger miracle than the resurrection uh, because that's just not how such things work. But even the women... We're talking about the male disciples doubting what they heard here. But even though Mary Magdalene was reporting, she herself and the women themselves were struggling with could this be real or not. In fact, in John 22, she says to Peter, they have taken the Lord out of his tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So how does that square with the words from the angels to her that Jesus had come back to life? Well, it means that she herself was struggling to process what had gone on and was trying to come up with other explanations rather than that Jesus was really alive. She may have been thinking something like this. Those guys at the tomb look scary. Maybe they just moved the bodies and were messing with us. Maybe Jesus is alive, but they've kidnapped him. I don't know what to do, Peter. Now, of course, one of the most common objections to the resurrection is that the body must have been stolen. It's been taught in different ways. Uh, But uh, if the disciples didn't do it, uh, then that would mean the Romans or the Jewish leaders would have had it done. And think about immediately, 50 days after Christ rises from the dead and ascends to heaven, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 got saved and baptized. And immediately that same year that Jesus rose and ascended to heaven, that same year there was already trouble in Jerusalem and one by one in other cities as the message of the resurrection got out there. If the Jews or Romans had stolen the body, they would have reproduced it as quick as possible or had people testify to it being around so that they could stop this before it got going like it did, before this message of the resurrected Lord got going. And if the disciples had stolen it to have this big message to build a church on, (laughs) you know, people think about the power and money that the Roman Catholic Church had in the Middle Ages, and they go back to those disciples and they say, well, the disciples stole the body and moved it and came up with this lie about Jesus being risen because they knew you can get a lot of money by being a preacher and building a church. They knew that if they put this out there, fame and riches would come their way. But is that what came their way? No. As they preached, Jesus is alive, and I'm not going to tell you he's not because I saw him alive. I saw him dead and then alive. As they preached that, people hated that message. And one by one, if they knew it to be a lie, one by one, they would have said, oh no, after they saw that people got executed for believing in Jesus Somewhere in there, that lie would have unfolded. It never did. There's no record of any of the disciples ever turning back. Instead, Peter hung on an upside-down cross. Thomas run through with a spear. Paul, who later came to faith, being beheaded 
one by one, they all gave up their lives because they would not say what they knew was, you know, they, they weren't going to say it didn't happen. It had happened and it had changed their lives and they were willing to give their lives for that. Certainly, you know, people have been known. I think about Chuck Colson's words after Watergate. He became a Christian, you know, and he said, listen, he said, I've been part of a conspiracy, what we did there at the Watergate Hotel. And he said, it took just about 10 hours for all the rats to get off the ship once the word came in. And uh, we were all saving our own skin and something like that would have happened with the disciples as well. They didn't get rich by preaching a crucified and risen Lord, they got killed for it. And for insisting that Jesus was alive, the only way of salvation, that he's coming back to judge and that everybody needs to be right with him. Folks, the text is very honest with us. The first disbelievers of the resurrection of Jesus Christ were the apostles themselves. They were not clinging to his promise of rising. They had seen him die and believed it was over. Now that's a real good word for us because we have our struggles too. We're told Jesus is coming back. We're told of a rapture, then a time of tribulation, then the return of Christ to rule and to reign on earth. We're told that we need to order our lives according to those realities to come. And yet in the day-to-day living, when all we see is what's before us, it's sometimes hard by faith to order our lives knowing that we're going to give an account to God, that we're going to be with Him forever, that He's going to give more responsibility to those who have faithfully served Him now. He himself gave the parables that taught things like when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find his, uh, those who believe in him working for him? Will he see that which he can reward? Are we being good stewards in his absence? He's gone a long way. He's coming back. And it takes faith for us to believe that as well. And so it's not uncommon for us to have little doubts creep in the same way that big doubts creeped in for these early disciples. So thank God for what we read next. Uh, my goodness. In verse 12, we see that Peter, and John lets us know he was with Peter, Peter investigated the resurrection claims and he met Jesus. Verse 12 says, but Peter arose. These ladies are crazy, everybody's saying. There's, Can you believe what they just told us? Dead people don't come back to life and stay alive. And Peter, it says, but Peter arose. And remember, this is still in that state where he had um, denied Christ and he had not been restored yet. That's going to come later. Peter was a mixed up mess right now during this time. But it says, but Peter arose and he ran to the tomb. And stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, the ones Jesus had been wrapped in. And he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. John's gospel lets us know that Peter and John raced to the tomb. They both were in on this. John stopped at the mouth of the tomb, but Peter just busted right in there. So he got to the empty grave first, empty tomb first. The body wasn't there. Only the linen strips that had wrapped the body were. And here we read that Peter marveled to himself. John 20 verse 8 tells us that when John went in, he saw and believed. Well, what did he believe? What did he believe? They believed what the ladies had said. Based on the evidence, they believed that the tomb really was empty. And they were willing to believe more. And thank God, more came quickly. That's when it got really good. Both uh, Luke and John tell us that Peter and John went back home. They went back to where they were staying. But Mary Magdalene herself and some other women had followed those guys. They just didn't get there as fast. And they had followed them back to the tomb and they had stayed. What do we do now? (laughs) Back there, the other guys are laughing at them. We don't know if Peter John can convince them what we've seen, but we knew what we'd seen. We knew the evidence that was before us. 
and they were lingering there. And my guess is those ladies, the Bible describes there being many of the ladies there. My guess is they spread out around that tomb area. And so kind of like when you're looking for something or someone and you're kind of spread out, you know, over about a football field and you can see each other. But, you, you know, that's my guess is what was happening when, as John's gospel reports, Mary Magdalene saw what she thought was a gardener and began talking to him. And Jesus himself revealed himself to her there as alive from the dead. And she was so excited, she gave him a big old hug like we're all going to do for each other after the COVID days end. And he said, no, no, time, not, not time for hugs now. Eternity will all be together, all those who believe in Jesus. Jesus revealed himself to her alive, and John's gospel lets us know that right after that, all the other ladies too. What's that commotion over there? And here they come. And the other ladies got to see Jesus alive too. God rewarded their faith, and they're waiting with an experience with the risen Lord. Well, then we know that uh, we're going to look at it next week. Then he appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, a guy named Cleophas and some others. Then to Peter, then to 10 of the 11 disciples with Thomas absent. Thomas didn't believe they'd really seen Jesus because dead people don't rise. But a week later, Thomas was with them and you've seen it. Jesus invited him to put his hands in the, in the places, the wounds, right? The wounds. And Thomas did, and he cried out, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Thomas, do you believe because you've seen? Blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe. And that includes the people in this room. Then Jesus appeared to the disciples at the Sea of Galilee, actually had breakfast with them there, restored Peter. Then to more than 500 disciples, perhaps as he gave the Great Commission, the book of Acts opens by saying that over the days between his death and um, his, his resurrection and his ascension to heaven, his rising up to heaven, during those days he taught the disciples many times the basic things that they went on to teach us in the rest of the New Testament. So glad they did. You know, some say, and then later he appeared to his unbelieving brother James, who became a believer because he saw the dead man was risen. And that happened for Jude, brother Jude also probably. James and Jude are the brothers of Jesus writing. At one time they did not believe, and then they did believe. Well, some say they all just saw a ghost, the ghost of Jesus, right? But you can't touch a ghost, and you can't have breakfast with a ghost. I've eaten breakfasts and lunches and dinners with many different friends and family members. I've never had dinner with Casper, you know, the friendly ghost. You don't have dinner, breakfast, or lunch with a ghost. You do have with a real person, and Jesus did that. They saw Jesus alive and believed and were bold witnesses of what they saw. But get this straight. They didn't take a leap of faith. They acted on what they knew to be true. The evidence demanded a verdict, and so they believed. Some dismissed the resurrection uh, by saying it was just the disciples' version of the myths of dying and rising gods that many religions have. Bill Maher suggests that in his documentary, Religious. Um, and uh, that has been discredited in lots of ways. C.S. Lewis uh, you know, didn't know what to do with that argument. Back in his days, he made a very convincing counterargument that was, uh, of course, you'd expect there to be hints of the great story among the lesser stories of the world, the true story, Jesus rising from the dead. But Gary Habermas up at Liberty has convincingly demonstrated that many of these stories of dying and rising gods uh, actually were a story without that happening before Christ, and it's only after Christ came that we see them adding a story in about their God who was dead rising. And they did that because we had the best story, the true story, 
God came to earth, dealt with our sin problem, rose from the dead, conquered the grave, is in heaven today, and can be found by those who turn to him in faith. More, you're going to see it every Easter time. Uh, Discovery Channel or another carts out something. There's usually no nothing to it. The latest ones is that a box of bones, the ossuary box of bones, a year after death, they would dig up the body, the bones there, they'd put them in a box and they'd have them around for their families and things. And they say they found the body and bones of, or the bones of Jesus and, uh, you know, his family and things. It's already been discredited, but those that talk to you at the water cooler aren't going to do that deep of research. There's just going to be one thing after the other. But nothing can explain that these cowards turned into peace-filled men and women who were bold for their faith and died because they had seen Jesus rise from the dead. Nothing answers that one, and it cannot. Uh, Jesus told Thomas, you believe because you saw. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. And he's speaking to you and me 2,000 years later. It's still not a leap of faith. Even though we don't get to physically see Jesus, Peter knows that when he's writing in 1 Peter and he says, he says, I admire your faith so much. He says, I saw Jesus alive. That's why I believe it and preach it. He says, but you love Jesus even though you haven't seen Jesus yet. And that's true for everybody in this room. My best friend, I have not seen physically with my eyes yet, but I will one day. And, and, and again, I am, I am not basing that simply on a leap of faith. The evidence is there. The evidence that demands a verdict from the most reliable book in world history, the Holy Bible. Jesus is still changing lives today as people turn to him in faith, basing, basing their lives on the evidence that demands a verdict. If you've not received Christ yet, now's the time. He died for your sins according to the scripture and he rose again the third day. I like how that great little hymn one day says it, right? Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. Romans 10, 9, Paul was preaching and he said, here's how you get saved. He says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Based on the evidence that is discoverable in the world's most reliable book and also that's said in the witnesses about the impact early Christianity had, you can reliably place your faith and trust in Christ. You've got to believe that there will never be a body of Jesus found except when he returns because he's in that same body today in heaven. He's going to come. You have to believe in the resurrection. There's not any kind of true Christian that disbelieves in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is, as Romans 10, 9 says, you've got to believe in your heart that he's conquered the grave and by faith believe that he will for you too. And you need to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Now, It doesn't say confess with your mouth the Savior Jesus, although he is your Savior. It says you need to confess that this evidence that you've discovered is worth making him your Lord, allowing him to be the one you follow the rest of your days, humbly submitting and surrendering to him as your Lord and Savior. Salvation's thrown into the mix, but you've got to acknowledge that he's rightfully the Lord you will follow all your days. Go ahead and bow your heads. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. 
There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.